Coming up on Philosophy Talk, dualism, the mind and the body. Where am I? It's so dark. In a doctor's laboratory. Am I all right? You're a disembodied brain kept alive by a scientist. But we're talking. I must at least have a lips, a, a tongue, a throat. Nothing, just a jar. Consciousness, physicalism. Is brain to the mind as hardware is to software? Is the mind something over and above the brain? Our guest is David Rosenthal from City University of New York. I understand you correctly. You want me to remove your brain and put it in a tank with number 21? Yes, we can communicate. We're in love. It's the only way we can be together. Put me in a tank. Dualism, coming up on Philosophy Talk after the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, dualism. So, dualism, what's that all about? Well, let's start with Descartes' famous line, I think, therefore I am. Descartes getting at the idea that he's a mind, and for a mind to exist is for it to think. And he thinks that's much different than what it is for a body to exist. A body is material, and it exists by taking up space. So minds, bodies, two different kinds of things, dualism. John, you're, you've just described Cartesian, or also called substance dualism, but there's also another form of dualism that's actually more common today. That's called property dualism. It says, yeah, mind and brain are the same stuff, but that one thing, that one stuff, has two different kinds of properties, mental properties and physical properties. Well, that's a pretty subtle distinction, but, but with the either version, we have to remind ourselves to start this discussion what, what exactly we mean by the mental. Now, suppose I say something obvious, like Ken weighs more than 100 pounds, or something that used to be true, like Ken has black hair. It's still mostly black. I've ascribed physical properties to him, weight and, and hair color. But if I say Ken is thinking about lunch or intends to take a bike ride tomorrow, then I've ascribed mental properties to him. That's right. And, and within the mental, we, we can also make some distinctions between thoughts on the one hand and experiences on the other. The properties that you were just mentioning, uh, what I was thinking about, what I intended to do, they're on the thought side because they're about something. They're about the lunch or about the bike riding. On the other hand, if I say that Ken's elbow itches or his coffee tastes good to him or he has a headache, I would be talking about Ken's experiences. What's important about experiences is not what they're about, if anything, but what they're like. Thoughts are there to be about something and get it true or false. Experiences just are. They just happen. Well, yeah, that, that's right. But, you know, a lot of the stuff on the mental side combines both thought and experience. Take an emotion like anger. Suppose you're angry about the high price of gas. Now, that anger would involve both thought-like elements because there would be something it's about, but there's also this characteristic feeling of anger that you get when you have that emotion. So we've got thoughts and experience in combination. Well, perception is another example of this combination. When I see Ken's smiling face... I have a sensation, an experience. My visual field is filled in a certain way with this smiling face. 
But but thoughts are also involved. Uh, I, I recognize from it that Ken is in front of me. I think he's smiling. He's happy, at least for the moment. So, okay, we've got thoughts and experiences, and we've got combinations of them. But here, here's where do these come from, and, and what are they for? I mean, everyone agrees, right, even the dualist agrees, that our mental states depend on, they're caused by states of the brain. I mean, John, you see me smiling because of a process of light bouncing off me, then entering your eyes, and then having a physical effect on your brain. Right, and and almost everyone agrees that it also goes the other way. For example, my seeing Ken smile, that is, that's mental, that might lead me to say, what are you so happy about in this miserable excuse for a world? So my my sensation and thoughts about Ken end up making my mouth move. My so, thoughts affect my brain and thus my body. So given that, you know, the question for me is why would anyone think that mind and mental properties or mind and the brain are different stuffs or properties over and above the brain and its properties anyway? I mean, it seems obvious because of this causal interaction you just talked about. Well, maybe so, but it seems just as obvious if you think about it. Uh, at least it seems obvious that they're not the same. I mean, does it make sense to ask what a thought looks like? How big a pain is? Or how much some anger weighs? Well, you know, okay, we've got two kind of warring uh, feelings here. And to help us sort this out, we're luckily joined by an expert, David Rosenthal, from City University of New York. He'll join us in a bit to help straighten us both out, John. If you'd like to join the conversation, you'll have to get your minds to tell your brains to tell your fingers to dial 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. Now, David Rosenthal is not a dualist himself, but there are many dualist scientists out there. And our roving philosophical reporter, Zoe Corneli, spoke to a prominent one about the dualist perspective. She files this report. For David Chalmers of the Australian National University, it all comes down to experience. Now, I'm not talking about how experienced a philosopher you are. I mean subjective, personal experience. For example, seeing the color red. Now, there's an objective element to this, you know, um, some photons will hit your retina and send signals up your optic nerve, and eventually you might come up with some sort of response, like, that's red. But there's also a subjective aspect to this, as anyone who's ever actually seen red for themselves knows. There's a, a way it is from the inside, that distinctive reddish quality that you experience for yourself. And there really seems to be this gulf between the objective processes and the subjective one. Now, a materialist would believe that we'll bridge that gap just as soon as we know enough about the science of the brain. Chalmers doesn't buy it. I think that's sort of an admirably open-minded attitude in a certain way, but I'm not sure that it really faces up to the the deeper mysteries of consciousness, the character of the problem we're faced here, of why it feels like something from the inside to be such a system. And so for that reason, I think, the, uh, I think the challenge to physical science isn't just a challenge to what we know now, but a challenge to what you can get out of the physical sciences in principle. So no matter how much detailed knowledge we have about the workings of the brain, Chalmers believes it will never be enough to explain what it's like to be inside your head, even if we knew so much that we could artificially reproduce a human brain. And I think it's actually quite possible that we could end up creating artificial consciousness without fully understanding consciousness. After all, this is something that, you know, we all do, if not, you know, every day, then every generation. We, uh, we create, we bring new consciousness into existence without having any idea what we're doing. And you mean having children. Exactly, exactly. Um, so we've produced consciousness, but we haven't understood consciousness. 
But if you can replicate all the physical things that create consciousness and that will give rise to consciousness, then what is it that's missing? What is it that's not there? Well, it's just a, just a basic distinction here between, say, correlation and explanation. We already know that you, know, you hit someone on the head, um, or you give them a certain kind of drug, you affect their consciousness in certain ways. I close my eyes and I'm no longer visually conscious, but that's just a level of correlation. You affect my brain, you affect consciousness. What we want out of science is explanation and understanding of why there's consciousness there in the first place at all. And that, Chalmers believes, is the final frontier that physical science may not be able to cross. Sure, he says, science has explained a lot of things that seemed mystical before, germs, magnetic fields, reproduction. But just because it's worked, you know, here and there doesn't mean it's going to work for absolutely everything. And I think everyone recognizes that consciousness poses really special challenges here. I mean, even people who are very much um, you know, otherwise sold on the materialist picture of the world often recognize that right now we just can't see how such a physical explanation will go. When I think about the materialist future in which science has explained so much that there's nothing left to feelings or the imagination, it strikes me as kind of sad. I asked Chalmers if he felt that way too. I can just say that's not what motivates me at all. There is a natural phenomena here. It's perfectly reasonable to try to explain it in physical terms and to try to reduce it. But once you actually try to do it, once you look at the phenomena, you see there's, there's actually quite good reasons why it's not going to work on scientific grounds. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Zoe Corneli. I'm John Perry, and with me is Ken Taylor. Our guest today is David Rosenthal. He's professor of philosophy at City University of New York, author of Consciousness and Mind. David, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Thank you, Ken. How are you? Okay. David, Good. You've, you've written extensively on mind and body, not only the book Ken mentioned, but many articles, and also a couple of anthologies that I've often used in my classes, uh, earning well, lots of you. royalties for you, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> now, what got you interested in the problems of mind and body and dualism and materialism? Well, it was a little bit by accident. I was thinking about some ethical problems when I was in graduate school, and it seemed to me that they all pointed towards how people think about things, how we think about our own actions, and how we think about other people's actions. And the next thing I knew, I was talking about things having to do with the mind, and ethics had kind of dropped back. And as Dave Chalmers, who Zoe was just talking with, and both of you know, there are plenty of problems about the mind to keep one busy, and I have been busy. So, so uh, uh, you were saved from a life of wallowing around in the depths of ethics by the, by yes. the mystery of the mind. All right, now I'm, I'm going to start off. You're a materialist. I mean, no use hiding that. Um, no use hiding that at all. <laughs> so I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm on the other side from Dave Chalmers. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start you off with an unsophisticated argument from dualism from Leibniz to, to, get you, to get you going. So if you were shrunk or my brain was enlarged so that one way or another you could walk right into my brain and look around, you wouldn't see any thoughts or experiences. I mean, what would they look like? You would just see a bunch of circuits and oatmeal-like glop. So how can thoughts and experiences be physical aspects of my brain? If they were, you could see them. Well, the same kind brain. of problem, I think, John, arises with tables and chairs 
and stones and trees and macroscopic objects in general, if I were shrunk to be small enough and walked around inside these objects, I wouldn't see the stones, I wouldn't see the tables, I wouldn't see the trees. I would just see subatomic particles or some such thing. So I think that that famous argument of Leibniz's um, it's what Dan Dennett at Tufts University calls an intuition pump. It makes puts you in the spirit of looking at things a certain way. And I think it's not that great an argument. Wait a minute. You think it's not that great an argument? Go back to the tables and chairs <laughs> and the shrinking down. Right? You know, now from the molecular perspective, well, let's take the quantum perspective, tables and chairs are darned hard to understand because... You know, the boundary between what's on the table and what's out of the table from the quantum perspective just doesn't exist. I mean, it's all just superposition of position, all that crazy stuff. If the brain is to the mind like that, I don't think that's very comforting for the materialist. Well, there are two things going on here, I think, Ken. One is um, quantum physics is crazy anyway. So maybe we can just bracket quantum physics for the moment and talk instead about you know, atoms and molecules. So from the point of view of atoms and molecules, it's very hard to get from them to tables and chairs. And that's not because atoms and molecules are all that crazy, bracketing quantum effects. Uh, it's just that you're looking at it from a different point of view. So, but we don't have any doubt about whether tables and chairs are made up of atoms and molecules and also nothing else. So right. We don't think there's an additional funny thing that makes them tables and chairs. Okay, so you're you're a materialist. Let me give you a particular example. Maybe we won't have time in this segment to, to really digest it. But let, let's say I, I poke Ken in the eye. Here, I'll, I'll do it just for... for uh, <laughs> okay, Not now, too hard. Now, now, when I did that, he felt something. His consciousness, there was an event there that he, I don't know, perceived is the right word, but he was aware of it. And he knew what it was like. He knew that was a kind of a certain kind of pain. Now, on your view, that is somehow a material phenomenon. Just tell us more about what it is. Is is it is it a pattern in the brain? Is it is it is it outside the brain? Where is it, and what is it? Well, pains, according to the materialist position, pains are literally identical with. They're the same thing as certain events or processes in the brain. So. It's not a mere correlation, as dualists might say, between a distinctively mental, non-physical occurrence, the pain, and some brain event, which is physical. They're just one and the same thing. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're discussing dualism with David Rosenthal from City University of New York. What if there really is nothing more to who you are and what you are than your body with its brain? Wouldn't that be kind of depressing? Wouldn't you rather be or at least have an immaterial mind, something that could survive the death of your body, serve as your immortal soul, go to hell forever for all the bad things you've done? Wouldn't that be comforting? If you don't know whether or not you're a brain, make up your mind and give us a call. Share your thoughts by calling toll-free at 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. The mind, the body, and consciousness, plus your calls and emails when Philosophy Talk continues. And the mind is completely different from the brain, from the brain, from the brain. 
Okay, folks, Dan Reeder and David Chalmers think the mind is not the brain, and our guest, David Rosenthal, thinks it is. What do you think? Do you feel like a brain inside a body? Or do you think there's more to you and me, for that matter, than that? We want to know what you think. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. This is Philosophy Talk, and we're discussing mind-body dualism. The toll-free number to join this conversation is 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. Or you can go to our blog and add a blog comment at theblog.philosophytalk.org. And last but not least, you can send us an email comment at uh, comments at philosophytalk.org. Our guest is David Rosenthal from City University of New York. So, David, I want to press you a bit on what we were just talking about just before the break. You say sure. you're a materialist. You say that pain event is just a brain event. But you know what? I know just by feeling and introspecting the complete character of my pain. I know how intense it is. I know how much it hurts me. And, you know, I'm completely ignorant, let's pretend, about what's going on in my brain now. So how could it be? It doesn't seem like I'm knowing anything about the brain at all. How could it be that the pain event is just a brain event when I know the one so completely and fully and I'm completely ignorant about the other. Well, there are two issues about that, I think, Ken. Uh, one is that there are experimental results that show that you probably don't know the character of your pain quite as well, quite as accurately, that is, as you think you do. But let's put that aside. Um, there's also the question of why you think, even if you, what you do know about your pain were entirely accurate, why would you think that that shows you everything about the pain? Well, why wouldn't you think, well, maybe there's another side to the pain, and that's the brain side? Well, there might be um, other things associated with it. I don't know all the causes. I don't know what goes on in my brain when I'm having it. But you know what? A pain is something that hurts. A stabbing pain is something that hurts in a characteristic way. Nothing but the stabbingness makes it a stabbing pain, and I know that directly and fully. Right? That's fine. But it might be that there is an addition. I mean, so you know certain properties of this occurrence. There's an occurrence in you. And you know certain properties, namely the stabbing and so forth. Uh, but maybe there's some more things that you don't know about it and that we need a sort of well-developed future theory to tell us. Well, but, but I mean, uh, if I'm a, what Ken has called a property dualist, that's what our right. uh, uh, interviewee David Chalmers is, and I'd say, well, that's fine. Uh, my pain has lots of properties, and a lot of them are physical properties. But there is this one thing, the thing I know about it when I'm conscious, and you're never going to find that in the brain. And that's, that's the feeling, and that's what's really... It doesn't even matter if that's essential. It doesn't have to be the whole truth. It just has to be a partly non-physical truth. Won't you admit that there's a little smidgen of non-physicality about Ken's pain? Well, I'm reluctant to say that there is. I mean, maybe it would turn out that there is. Maybe we could get some evidence that there is. But just because Ken has a pain that he thinks has a smidgen of non-physicality, you know, that's not... Pen may, Ken may be a good judge about whether the pain is stabbing or sharp or burning or whatever, but why should Ken be any judge at all about whether the pain is non-physical? Well, that's a good question. Let's put questions like that to our listening audience. Join this conversation at 1-800-525-9917. 1-800-525-9917. Or, as always, send us an email at comments or at philosophytalk.org. And we've got Dr. T in Oak Oakland on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Dr. T. Hi, 
Hello, how you doing? Okay, how are you? I am fine, thanks. I think we have a problem with uh, subjectivity here, though, I'm acknowledging its existence. Let me ask you this. If experience can be reduced to brain activity, why does blue feel different than red for me? Um, brain activity, the neurons are firing. Yes, they're firing at slightly different at a slightly different wavelength for the different colors. But the different wavelength and colors, that numerical difference in wavelength, has um, nothing to do with my phenomenal experience of blue or my phenomenal experience of red and all the associations that go along with the experience of that color. You can't deny that that experience exists, and that experience cannot be reduced to neuronal activity. So, David, that's a mouthful. Thanks, uh, thanks a lot for the mouthful, Doctor. What do you think, uh, uh, David? Well, that's a very good question, and I think it presses on what John was also just pressing on, namely this idea of property dualism, that the event that occurs in the brain also may have some non-physical properties, namely these subjective properties that Doc T was just talking about. The question that I have is, why do you think that these subjective properties are non-physical? And the idea that they aren't very much like any other physical properties that we know about, that doesn't show that the properties, that subjective properties are non-physical. They might be just a special kind of physical property. Well, they might be a very special kind of physical. They'd have to be a very special kind of physical property because, look, we've got this subjective access to these properties, and any process, uh, any uh, properties that we have objective access to, right, like the neurons firing, we are, like, completely puzzled at how the one thing could be the other thing. I mean, science tells us, oh, yeah, the brain does this, that, and the other thing. Is that the mind? It's just a puzzle. We don't know how to answer that question. I mean, that suggests that we're getting at two different things. Well, I think that there are two different issues bound up in what you were just saying, Ken. One issue is you, you characterized one thing as subjective access and the other thing as objective access. So we have to figure out exactly what the difference is, and maybe there isn't any. But p bracketing that for the moment, this business about we don't have any idea how to explain how one thing, the brain event, could be the other thing, namely something with subjective properties, well, we don't at the moment. But harken back a hundred and so years ago, we didn't really have any very good idea. That is to say, we didn't have any very well-developed theories um, about how little particles could be tables and chairs. Now, in those times, people talked about there being a mystery. Uh, so the famous physicist Sir Arthur Eddington spoke about there being two tables, one of which was the familiar macroscopic table that you can put things on and it's solid, and the other is the one that's made out of particles and is mostly empty space. Nobody really worries about that problem anymore because we have a very well-developed theory about how one could be the other. What we're missing with the mind and the brain now is a very well-developed theory like that about how one could be the other. So the time to be really talking about whether science shows us that we have no way to bridge this gap is after we have a good theory. Okay, now that, that leads into an email we have here. This is from uh, Ron. I think Ron may be a scientific type because his 
His his uh, username is Iridium Head. But at any rate, <laughs> Ron says, Hi, Philosophy Talk team. I'm enjoying their show so far. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. Question. Assume that string theory turns out to be right and the entire universe, matter and energy, both are composed of tiny vibrating strings of energy. Then will this settle the dualism debate or add to the confusion? I'll give my quick answer. It'll add to my confusion. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I think string theory may be on its way out. This, you know, these two books, what's wrong, why it's not even wrong, and what's wrong with string theory. Uh, yeah, not even wrong is, I think, what they say these days. Yeah. You can't tell. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about mind-body dualism. We'd love you to join this conversation. 1-800-525-9917. That's 1-800-525-9917. And David in Berkeley's on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, David. Hi. So I, I wanted to get to some more mind-centric uh, questions. I mean, something one should be able to answer is what, what is a definition from a materialist point of view? All right, what, what, what constitutes a number, a mathematical concept? What's a quantum field theory? I mean... I'm not quite sure I'm following you, David. Uh, what, what's your, 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 you intend to be well, posing some kind it, of challenge, it, but I don't get, get what it is. Well, yet. If, if, if from a materialist point of view, uh, if you're going to describe everything as being a consequence of, of experience, I mean, how do, you dis, how do you explain, you know, something that's well, let, let, to be there, irrelevant you, of experience? Well, I mean, what's a number? What, well, what, what you know, that, you, uh, what, what you may be advocating is, is really uh, more than dualism. It's kind of a, a threeism. The, uh, uh, Sir Karl Popper and the, uh, 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 the great uh, biologist and brain scientist uh, uh, Eccles, I don't know what his first name was, David Eccles, uh, had, had Sir this... Sir John. Sir John Eccles, thank you, had this view that there's really three kinds of things out there. there there's minds... Uh, and there's bodies, and they thought that the left side of the brain was where the minds and the bodies interacted. But there was this third thing, this this abstract stuff, all the knowledge, all the theories collected in our libraries. And they thought, you know, materialism didn't even have it half right; it only had it a third right. That there's really these three things. But this is the, these are both problems for the materialists. How about the mind? And how about all these abstract objects that don't look very physical, like numbers? What do you think about all that, David? Well, I think that the problem about abstract objects like numbers and sets, and maybe there are some more, uh, that these things pose a more serious problem for the materialist than minds. Uh, because uh, Descartes thought, as you said at the beginning, John, in your setup piece, Descartes thought that the mind had no extended existence. It didn't occupy space, as you put it. So. Um, it doesn't have a mathematical nature, and body has a mathematical nature. Um, it's hard to see how extendedness uh, existing in time and space fits with numbers and sets. So I think that that may be a more um, difficult problem for materialists to solve. I think you're probably uh, right. But about happily, I don't work on that. David, I think <laughs> you're probably right about that, but, and this not, but that's not what the show is about. And uh, Thanks, uh, David, yeah. the caller, for the call. We've got more callers on the line. Mark in the East Bay. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Mark. Hi. My question is, how is free will possible from a materialist point of view without determinism? Interesting question. David, what do you think? Well, I'm a little skeptical about free will myself. Uh, some people think that free will might be introduced because of those quantum effects that you were talking about before, Ken, 
where things go a little haywire at the quantum level, and then there's room for something free to enter. Um, and I don't, I don't know much more to say about um, uh, free will here, but I think free will may be a little bit of a mystery even for a dualist, because many dualists think that the standard kind of dualist thinks, look, what happens is um, you have a bodily event in the brain and it affects the mind. Uh, you have a mental event in the mind that affects the brain. Or if you're a property dualist, you just have events with two kinds of properties, mental and physical. And where does free will come from on that picture? So I think free will is problematic anyway. Let me follow up uh, on that a little bit. I've always thought the problem of free will kind of comes in two layers. Uh, th there used to be a tribe of philosophers that called themselves naturalists. They don't Now that usually means materialists. But naturalists thought that the mind was a part of nature, even though it wasn't necessarily material. And therefore, as a part of nature, it, it operated according to laws. Uh, so there was a determinism. That is, uh, uh, every, every event is governed by laws and is, is uh, in principle predictable. Uh, that's separate from materialism. And you can get worried about free will even if you're a dualist and you think, gosh, but still, everything I do is determined by my beliefs and desires, and they're determined by things that happened in the past. Then, if you add materialism in, then you've got a whole other level of perplexity. Right. So the free will problem is the problem that keeps on giving. Well, that's true. And if you're a well, theist and you believe in divine creation, you can get worried about free will because God has foreknowledge and causes the universe and all that. But you know what? There is this thing. Uh, there is an impulse in the, behind the caller's question. Dualism, the decline of dualism does seem to many people to represent a loss of something, a loss of another assault on human dignity. Because if the human soul is this immaterial something that's outside of the natural order, it gets that, you know, it gets to be uh, survive the body's death. It gets to be like God and not just dumb matter, you know. So the dualism enshrines some human hopes and aspiration, and materialism seems to keep knocking those down. Do you believe in a material soul, David? Well, I think that you can talk about the aspirations and about the soul and about the spiritual aspect of human existence without taking any position on materialism or dualism. I think it's very clear that um, there's something when we talk about the soul or the spirit um, that is very meaningful, and we can make good sense of that talking in psychological terms, talking in mental terms, the question is not whether we're getting rid of the mental. The question is whether the nature of the mental is non-physical. And I think that's independent. I, I, I think you're right. We've got lots of callers here. We're talking about dualism with David Rosenthal from the City University of New York. You can join this discussion by calling 1-800-525-9917 or email us at comments at philosophytalk.org. And Shui in San Jose is on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Shui. Did I get that name right? Yeah, Shui, that's correct. Okay, so what's your comment or question? Well, I pretty much think that um, there is no dualism between the mind and the brain, and that it's just one complete entity. Because if you would affect a part of the brain, um, you're going to definitely affect the mind. So they're definitely like linked pretty closely. And for example, like, and I think it's more specific than that, and that's why the link is so close and clear. Because if you lesion a certain part of the brain, you'd have a certain effect to your personality or, I don't know, your senses. And so I think that's pretty strong evidence for 
the two being inseparable and the two being the same thing. Shway, I think I think you're right. That's strong evidence, but it's not a conclusive argument. Go, go back to the distinction between causation and correlation. The mind could just be... David, is there anything to be said for the claim that the mind and the brain are just correlated? Is there anything left to be said for that on behalf of that? Well, theory? I think that there isn't a whole lot. I, I agree with Shway. I think that the fact that there are these amazing correlations and they neuro people keep on discovering more all the time the journals are filled with them and you have to sort of dig in your heels and say well but so what it's still a different thing uh, and what would be the evidence for that at some point you, you never really have evidence in these kinds of cases when you're talking about theoretical identifications um, you never have evidence that's 1,000% ironclad, you can't break out of it. It's always kind of you figure out how to infer to the best explanation of what's going on. And the best explanation of what's going on is that they're the same thing. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, mind-body dualism. Our guest is David Rosenthal from City University of New York. You know, we live in a much different world than Descartes lived in. We have machines, computers to which we readily ascribe all kinds of thought-like states. My computer knows my schedule. It computes, figures out the answers to difficult questions. It lets me know when people are trying to contact me. Do machines really think? Could machines have experiences? Could they be conscious? Why or why not? The mind, the body, and maybe even the immaterial soul, when Philosophy Talk continues. Your mind would be pretty ugly if it just looked like oatmeal, like the glop in your brain. Wouldn't it be nicer to locate the mind in something a little more elegant, in experience, in consciousness? If we're just material beings, could experience and consciousness be the ultimate refuge of the mind? I'm John Perry, and it confuses me. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're talking about dualism with David Rosenthal from City University of New York. So, David, contemporary property dualists like David Chalmers really focus not so much on thought, which they think maybe you could uh, imagine a computer having, that is uh, uh, an intentionality about, but, but the, the idea of consciousness, that, 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 that we have the experiences that it's like something to have. Now, how, how do you, uh, as a materialist, think of consciousness? Uh, you have a higher order theory of consciousness, as I believe. Could you tell us a little bit about that? It briefly. Well, my higher order theory of consciousness, in effect, says you have to separate out two things. One is the state that occurs, and the other is your conscious access to that state. So if, for example, earlier in the program you were talking about Ken's having a pain, and Ken was saying, well, he had very good access to that pain. So the pain is one thing, and the access that you have to the pain is a second thing. Now, if you separate out the two things in that way, then the pain itself can occur without being conscious. And we have pretty good evidence, psychological experimental evidence, uh, that pains do occur without being conscious and that all sorts of experiences, qualitative states, um, subjective states occur without being conscious. 
And when they occur without being conscious, there's no particular difficulty about incorporating them into a materialist framework. And then the only trick is to say, well, how is it that we're conscious of them? And my idea is that we're conscious of them by having something like a thought about them. And now, David, that, said, that's a complicated, that's a mouthful here, and I'm not going to try and break it down, but I'm going to try and cut to a question about it, okay? Because let's go back well, to... Well, let not- me, Ken, just let me put it into simple terms. You, you take the conscious experience and you break it into two pieces, and those two pieces are by themselves unproblematic for materialism. That's the idea. Divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. Divide and but conquer. I, I want to exactly. go back to my pains and the experience <laughs> of pain and my... You said... So, look, I'm not a very good authority on what's happening in my brain. You know, some guy with a cerebroscope could tell me a lot more about my brain than I could tell you. But I'm a very good authority on my pains. Suppose somebody says, you know what, I'm reading your brain and you think you're in pain, but you're not in pain because this cerebroscope says no, Right? That seems weird, doesn't it? I'm the absolute authority on how much it hurts and on how it hurts, right? Well, you think you are, and I'm happy. <laughs> don't you for think that. I am? No, I don't think you are. <laughs> I think that. I mean, we we probably know enough now because we know people mistake pains for itches, and they mistake one kind of pain for a different kind of pain. We know we know cases of this. Uh, I don't know enough about the brain science for pain specifically. I know a little more about vision. But it seems to me perfectly clear that we could wire you up and somebody who knows this stuff could say, well, you think that it's a sharp pain. It's really more like a burning pain. And you might dig your heels in and say no. But I think sometimes you might say, oh, how about that? You're right. So, look, David, let's get some let's get some callers in here. I know, uh, you know, consciousness is a big mystery. Many religions uh uh, are, are puzzled about that, including Buddhism. And Ismerelda in San Francisco has a question for us about Buddhism. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Ismerelda. Thank you very much for including me in the conversation. I don't think that uh, that Buddha was confused about any of this. I think that everything that you're bringing up and all of the points where you get to about empty space and partiality, Buddha. Lord Buddha, 6,000 years ago, explained emptiness, explained consciousness, explained every single thing that you're talking about very, very clearly, every level of consciousness, every level of subtle body, how to die, how to remain conscious through the death process, what happens at night when we sleep. You're talking about tables and chairs, but what is the nature of a table and chair that is in your dream. Ismerelda, th- thanks for the call. I mean, I think Buddha probably has lots of great insights, but I don't think Buddha ended the debates about these things because they have gone on for quite a long time. John, you have an email there, right? Yeah, I've got an email that, that goes back to David's theory of consciousness, and he's, and, and, and and this is from uh, Cheryl Weiss. It has a number of points, but the point I think that's relevant is this. How about other species with brains? They Don't they have minds? Don't they experience pains? Now, if pain, if the experience of pain, David, is 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 kind of this higher-order phenomenon, would we say the animals are in pain, but they don't really have the consciousness of pain? Doesn't that sound a little weird to be in pain but not be conscious of the pain? Yeah, I think it sounds a little weird. I think we don't really know for very many animals what's going on with them like that. Pain, by the way, even if it isn't conscious, 
is not a nice thing. You don't want somebody to be in pain even if it isn't conscious. But I think also lots of mammals, maybe all mammals, maybe birds, birds are very smart, uh, they have thoughts, certainly. There's very strong evidence they solve problems, they do all sorts of fancy things. So there's no reason why they couldn't have this higher order awareness that I'm talking about. Okay, so now let me see. Do we have two things or three things? So we've got the pain. We've got the higher order thought about the pain. Now where does this what it's like property that Chalmers thinks is so important come in? Is that with the thought or with the pain? Yes. Does the animal have it or lack it? Well, I think lots of animals have these higher-order thoughts, uh, or at least I think it's perfectly possible. And I think that the what-it's-like business, what it's like for me or you or for a chipmunk, uh, I think that that comes in with the higher-order awareness, which I think is a higher-order thought. You know, I, I don't know. I, I think... Uh I think a pain is essentially a thing of which you're aware. It's a form of awareness, but I'm just a naive guy. But we've got lots of callers. Let's see if they're naive or sophisticated. Jeff and Hayward, uh, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Uh, did you say Jeff? Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, I, there was a glitch in the phone. Um, I had a notion a long time ago, and I've not had it kind of satisfied in the meantime, and I'd like you guys to have a whack at it, is how is it that we're able to think about what we're thinking as we're thinking about it, it seems like it's, uh, it's an impossible paradox. It's kind of like a, a, the first wheel as it was being made would be making uh, another better wheel than itself at the exact same time. It seems impossible to happen. Well, uh, David, you got a theory about that? Well, there's some evidence about something that's like that. The late... Um, brain scientist Benjamin Libet uh, at the University of San Francisco uh, did some renowned experiments where he showed that looking at the brain, an intention to move your finger, for example, occurs before the individual is aware of that intention. So it may be that this higher order awareness occurs maybe a third of a second or so after the mental event that you're aware of. Right. So it may not be exactly simultaneous. It appears simultaneous, but we have subjectively nothing to measure it against. Libet thought, we have well, is... Libet thought philosophers made a hash of all this stuff, right? He thought that uh, this showed something about free will and all this. But notice, if, if, he David, think that. if David is right, Libet made a hash of it, because really... Yes. Uh, it's the awareness of the intention that he was timing and finding, uh, but the intention itself, on your theory, uh, uh, wouldn't be identical with the awareness of it, but would be exactly. something that started before and could have caused the action. Right. Why don't we take another caller? Kevin and El Cerritos on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Kevin. Hi. Uh, uh, my my uh, comment has to do with the analogy of the mind and the body to what, um, what you're talking about, uh, computers. Um, the computers being the hardware and uh, the the software running and like the soul essentially being an, an analogy to like the operating system and the yeah that's a wide that, thanks Kevin that's a widely believed analogy David what do you think of that analogy well I think it may be partly okay it works as I think John mentioned earlier in the, our conversation it works better with thinking than it does with experiencing and sensing and feeling. Uh, so I think 
Um, at that point, you have to have some kind of input device, and it's hard to know how to make the input device analogous to uh, our bodily senses. Right. I mean, couldn't it be like this? I mean, think, of the, think about consciousness again. What is consciousness? It's not just stuff with equality. It's all this stuff interacting together under your control. So if I have a pain, I know it's in my arm and I had to do something about it. That's what Ned Block calls access consciousness. Maybe that's all there is to consciousness, the integrating of all this stuff into this unified field of self. What do you think of that? Well, I'm not wild about that idea. <laughs> uh, sometimes called a global workspace theory of consciousness. Right. Uh, and Ned Block does talk about it as access consciousness. I think the trouble is there's a lot of integration that occurs in the mind without its being at all conscious. So I don't think that that really captures, you know, it must be then a special kind of integration that's conscious, and what's the special kind? So on that score, I just want to briefly mention a, 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 an interesting email from Alvin. We won't have time to discuss it, but he does say, uh, the Origin of Consciousness in the Bicameral Brain by Julian Jaynes. Very worth mm. going back and reading. Right. So, David, on those, on those integrative notes, I'm going to have to thank you for joining us. It's been a, ni a very nice conversation. It's been a pleasure. Our guest has been David Rosenthal, professor of philosophy at City University of New York, author, among other things, of Consciousness and the Mind. So, John, you know a lot about this. You've written a great book. Uh, John, you may not want to pump your own, uh, you know, <laughs> or maybe you do, well, but John's written a great book about this topic. So. Uh, yeah. So what uh, did you learn today? I, I'm glad you think it's great. Uh, uh, I haven't been convinced that the philosophical world in general is of that opinion. <laughs> yeah, it's called Knowledge, Possibility, and Consciousness. It's out in paperback. It has a very attractive cover. makes a great gift, but I don't want to pump my book either. <laughs> yeah, but uh, anyway, what did what, what, you learn today? Well, there's these big problems in philosophy like free will and consciousness and the nature of numbers that eventually if you push them hard enough, they seem to bring all the problems of philosophy together. And uh, uh, I think uh, uh, the property dualists, David Chalmers, uh, Frank Jackson, at least for a while, and the others have done a great service in really forcing us to consider these arguments uh, that suggest that the materialist view needs some working out. And David Rosenthal uh, and, and others have, have done a good job, but I, but I think the jury is still out whether we're going to need some kind of major innovation in our thinking to really understand consciousness. Uh, I agree with you totally about the major innovation. I mean, I, I, I'm a committed materialist, but I'm impressed by the persistence of dualist intuitions and thinking. And I, and I think there's a deep reason for that, because I think the, our, our kind of modes of access to ourselves, our self-knowledge, is different from our mode of access to the brain and the stuff that the sciences reveal to us. And that difference is kind of built into our architecture, and, and we have the feeling that we're getting at different things via these different routes, and it's hard to convince ourselves completely that we're getting at the same thing. I, I, and, I, and I think all of our concepts are really built for, for dealing with things outside of us. I mean, that's what's a practical concern. And so we don't really have the kind of conceptual tools developed into our language and, and available to us by nature to think about this funny knowledge we have of our own But this, co this conversation continues on our blog, theblog.philosophytalk.org, or go to our Facebook space, our new Philosophy Talk space there, and join in the conversation there. For the final word, we turn to the mind and the body of Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Ian Scholes, if you believe that mind and matter are separate, you're a dualist. Some of the best minds today, however, believe that there is no mind. Sorry, folks, it's just neurons firing in the brain. You might say we're of two minds about dualism. Dualism was first called into question with the rise of the scientific revolution, the coming of iron and steam and electricity. 
Psychology came along for that ride with its implication that the brain itself is a machine, which can be understood by its parts. And, of course, modern genetics and brain research advance the notion that, as philosopher Daniel Dennett put it, we're all zombies. Nobody is conscious. Dennett also wrote, quote, dualism has been relegated to the trash heap of history along with alchemy and astrology, unquote. Strangely enough, one of the means by which proponents seek to prove dualism is exactly through astrology, alchemy, and the ilk, through parapsychology anyway. If telekinesis can be proven, if out-of-body experiences can be proven, the theory goes, it would also be proof that there are forces outside the realm of physics. And if telepathy could be proven, well, if you can read a mind, doesn't that mean there's a mind to read? This may be one of the reasons why skeptics are so eager to debunk the paranormal. It's a threat to their own atheistic, robot-driven worldview that we are merely puppets dancing on the strings of physiology. Well, I don't know. If you claim that moving objects with your mind is outside the realm of physics, well, that's outside the realm of physics now. But today's paranormal could be tomorrow's normal. And if you bend a spoon with your mind, how can you be sure you're really bending the spoon with your mind? Maybe the spoon decided to bend itself with its own mind. Even if parapsychological phenomena are accepted as physical phenomena, wouldn't that be a mechanistic proof of dualism and therefore no proof at all? After all, if there's concrete proof of an afterlife, where's the place for faith in one? And even if spoon-bending is proof of a dualistic universe, who wants to live in a dualistic universe where all the spoons are bent and useless? And why is there spoons that are being bent? Why not forks? And which came first, the spoon or the fork? Maybe it was the spork. Science, alas, remains strangely silent. I gotta go. Ian Shows, the only man who can solve a philosophical problem in 60 seconds. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2008. Our executive producer is David Demarest. Our production coordinator is Devin Strolovich. Daniel Elstein is our director of research. Lael Weiss is our webmaster. Also thanks to Zoe Corneli, Merle Kessler, Corey Goldman, and Mark Stone. Philosophy Talk is sponsored in part by Powell's City of Books on the web at powells.com. Support also comes from the Templeton Foundation. And from various groups at Stanford University, the Friends of Philosophy Talk, and the members of KALW San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed in this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.